So we pray that over our lives as well, Lord. We're each come here this morning in, in a different place with a different need, with a different want, with different anxieties. And Father, we pray that however you would work in our lives and however you would lead us from the service, that, that you would be glorified um, through that, through how we live, through how we speak, through how we act. And Father, that's why we, we come to your word every day. That's why we come to your word together every week is because we know we need your leading. We know we need your guidance in our lives so that we can live in a way that brings glory and honor to you. And so we pray that you would do that this morning, that as we open up your word and as we dive into it, Father, we pray that anything that would hinder us from hearing you speak, any anxieties or fears or frustrations, that you'd shove all that off to the side and that, that you'd speak clearly and powerfully to us, that we would not only know you better, but that we would leave with a deeper faith in you, a deeper wholehearted trust in who you are and how you're working in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. When we're moving into the next chapter of John, this still isn't working, right? I didn't think so. All right, so... I'll have to cue Shar somehow, and I'm just going to get this out of the way, or I'm going to keep trying to click it. So we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best Till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Um, every time we, we read a story from the Bible, you can go to the next slide, Shar. Um, every time we read a story from the Bible, and I think especially a story about Jesus. We have to fight this temptation in ourselves to kind of read our own personality, our own experience into that story. I, there's just kind of something naturally inside each one of us that assumes kind of everyone sees the world the way that we do or that they should see the world the way that we do. And I think that even multiplies more when we read a story about Jesus because 
we want to relate to Jesus. We want to understand who He is. And so, naturally, when we read stories about Jesus, we try to make Him understandable to us. And so, we kind of assume that He's acting like us or things are happening that we would do. Um, and when that happens, what, what I see easily ends up happening is that we kind of end up missing the point of a passage or we actually misunderstand the story itself. And so, when, as we're going through the rest of this Gospel and we're reading all of these stories about Jesus and what He's doing, we need to be really careful not to make any assumptions. Assuming, well, this is why Jesus did that. Or this is why it was written this way. Rather, we need to ask a lot of questions. Like, why did He say that? I think in, in this passage, there's a few times this week as I was studying it where I'm like, wait, why did He say that? Why did she say that? I don't understand. Uh, But when we ask those questions, then we need to make sure we don't just assume that we know the answers to those questions. We need to look for the answers from Scripture itself. Either from the passage that we're reading, or from the book that we're reading, or even just understanding it based on themes throughout Scripture. Because that's how we, we just figure out, we come to better conclusions about these kind of stories. And, you know, the reason I'm starting off that way is that Um, This story of the wedding at Cana and the miracle that Jesus does here is probably, it's got to be one of his best known stories, right? A lot of people know about it. Uh, I think it's well known because it's his first miracle. It kicks off his public ministry. It's well known because it's a, a wedding reception and there's a lot of wine at it and people find some intrigue by that. I also think it's a just a really good story. Just in general, the story itself, there's curiosity, there's intrigue, there's some tension to it, and there's questioning about what's going on. So it's just a good story, and it kind of builds in tension up to that moment when the the master of the feast is about to take a sip of water or wine, and nobody knows really what's going to happen. And so there's all of this good storytelling in it, but because it's so well written, and because so many people know it, I would say, Um, I think it's been misunderstood so many times because so many people have kind of just assumed, including myself, some of my assumptions changed this week as I studied it because we just assumed we kind of knew what was going on. And so uh, the first passage we're going to read here kind of lays out the scene of the story. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so it's kind of laying out the scene. It's setting the picture of what's about to happen. And it actually answers some questions that we maybe didn't ask in the last chapter. If you go to the next slide, Char, last week we, we read that the next Jesus decided, Jesus and his disciples decided to go to Galilee. And they found Nathaniel and Philip there, right? And they followed Jesus. And uh, now we know why they went to Galilee. Because they were invited to a wedding. <laughs> That's why. It's not just Jesus. I think this is one of the things it's helpful when we read through these Gospels is um, Jesus is just living like a natural person. Like he got invited to a wedding, so he decides to go to Galilee. That's why he went there to be part of this this wedding. And But also there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens with that. If you go to the next slide, Char, at the end of the Gospel of John, we read that Nathaniel is from Cana in Galilee where this wedding is happening. We had just read, right? Nathaniel had come to believe in Jesus. He had followed Him. And then the very next story, we're in Cana in Galilee. 
where Nathanael is from. So most likely, when they went to Galilee, they went to Cana. That's why they found Nathanael there. And most likely, what you kind of pick up from all of this, Mary was invited to this wedding. Jesus was invited to the wedding. And it also says all of Jesus' disciples were invited to this wedding. And most likely because they knew the, they knew the bride and groom. All of, because all of the disciples were friends, right? Peter, Andrew, Philip, they're all from Bethsaida. They all knew each other. They went and found Nathaniel, so he was a buddy of theirs. And so this is like just a big gathering of friends and family at this wedding. And, and some commentators think that it's probably a close family friend of, of Jesus and Mary. And possibly, it's some speculation, possibly Mary had a role to play in the festivities making sure that everything goes smoothly, right? She's kind of like, what is it? Is it the matron of honor is in charge of kind of making sure the reception goes smoothly? And so Mary's kind of playing that role. That's maybe her job. i got to make sure everything happens smoothly. But it doesn't, (laughs) right? The first words we hear out of Mary's mouth is, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And, you know, the story's well-known enough. I think most of us know, like, that's a bad thing. Um, it's not a bad thing because it's like, oh, shoot, the wedding party's not able to get plastered and celebrate. That's not why it's a bad thing. It's, it's a bad thing because it showed that they failed at hospitality, which was huge. And, and these weddings would go on for two, three, sometimes seven days. And it was up to the, the host's to make sure they provided for everyone. And if you failed to provide, you were failing at hospitality. And in a shame culture, that was terrible. And so, and actually, I read a commentator this week that he said, he said actually there was even the possibility if you failed at hospitality, you could get sued at your own wedding. You could get sued for not providing enough wine for the people who were there or food for them. And so, like, they saw that as a, as a really serious offense. But what takes place after Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no wine? I think, I don't know, it caused me to ask a lot of questions. I think it has a lot of people asking a lot of questions because it doesn't all quite make sense right away, and we're trying to make sense of it. And, and so it's this next part where we try to go, oh, I think I know what's going on based on our own personal experience, but then that kind of leads us to wrong interpretations. So if you go to the next slide... Mary comes to Jesus and says, there is no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so, on the one hand, I think we can clearly see Mary was asking Jesus to do something. right? She wasn't just informing him like, they're out of wine. She's saying, Jesus, they have no wine. Do something. Um, And then Jesus responds like, when he responds by saying, so the NIV kind of translates it, dear woman. Um, but I think that's probably too warm. But Jesus isn't like saying, you know, like the stereotypical like guy saying like, woman, make me a sandwich. That's not what Jesus is saying. Um, but he's not calling her mother either, right? So he's not like warm and close saying mom. He's saying woman. He's kind of separating himself a little bit, and he's kind of rebuking her a little bit, isn't he? You can see he's kind of, it's a little cold, and he says, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. And so 
he's, he's rebuking Mary, saying, this, this isn't about me. It's not my hour to do anything. But then you go to the next part, and Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I just had to put my Bible down and go, where does she get that? I mean, she goes to Jesus, we have no wine. He says, what does that have to do with... He didn't say it with that tone, but what does that have to do with me? My time has not come. And she looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And then she walks away. And so she assumes Jesus is going to do something. And this is where I think people... I've heard a lot of bad interpretations of what just happened there because I've heard a lot of people say, well, that's just the persuasive power of a mother, right? Because we know, like, we've all had moms who just get us to do things we don't want to do because they just know how to push the right buttons, right? And so I've heard a lot of people say, look at this. Mary, she knows she's a mom, and she knows how to get Jesus to do what she wants him to do. And I think, well, that's maybe true, but I don't think that's actually what's going on here. Or I've heard other, other sermons in, kind of address this interaction and say, well, this is just showing the gentleness and kindness of Jesus, that, that he wasn't ready to start his public ministry yet, but, but because he cared for his mom and he didn't want her to be shamed, he, he cared for his friends at the wedding, he didn't want them to be shamed, he just kind of like pushed up the, the timeline a little bit, did a miracle anyway to kind of care for the people around him. And, and there's a whole bunch of other pictures of what's happening here, trying to figure out why this happens. And I don't think I don't think any of them actually make sense in the long run because at what point do we ever read about Jesus saying, well, my father told me to do this, but because you want me to, I'm going to do it now. Like it never, not even his mom, right? Uh, he's like, the, the repeated theme throughout all of the gospels, the repeated theme throughout the book of John is Jesus saying, I will go where my father tells me to go. I will do what my father tells me to do. And I will say what my father tells me to say. And nobody else is going to stop me from doing that. And so I don't think it's right to say like Mary was just really persuasive that she got him to do something that wasn't the Father's will. Like, no, that's, that's not it. And so, and I think that's actually part of the reason why Jesus rebukes her. Because I think she was trying. She was trying to be the persuasive mom saying like, if you're going to do something big, Jesus, now's the time. Like, do something. And he says... No, my hour has not yet come. And that's actually a theme. If you go to the next slide, uh, we see these two things happen. Over, said Jesus says this over and over and over again for about 11 chapters in, in the Gospel of John. He says, my hour has not yet come. Or, or John will say, this, they tried to get him. They didn't find Jesus because his hour had not come. Or Jesus tells the disciples, the hour is coming, which assumes that the hour has not yet come. And so there's this theme throughout the Gospel of John of people trying to get Jesus to come to the hour before it's time and Him saying, it is not time yet. Until we get to chapter 12, which is like right in the middle of the Gospel, and then we read Jesus say, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, and it's powerful if you're reading through the whole Gospel of John in, in one sitting you know, for 11 chapters, you hear the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, and then you finally read Jesus say, now it's here. It's here, and I'm going to be glorified. And he goes on in a couple verses. He says, 
My soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? This purpose, I've come to this hour, right? It's the, the hour in the Gospel of John in particular is about Jesus' death and, and resurrection. That's the hour. Anytime you hear about the hour, it's talking about this moment of Jesus' death and His resurrection. That's when Jesus will be glorified in its fullness. And, and He said, this is the whole reason I came to earth. This is the whole reason why I've done everything I've done on earth is to come to this hour where I will die and I will rise again. And so when Jesus tells Mary, my hour has not yet come, we have to understand it in that. And yet, I understand, that doesn't really make sense either, does it? (laughs) Mary comes to Jesus and says, they ran out of wine, and he says, it's not yet time for me to die, Mom. That doesn't make sense either. But here's what I think is happening, and this is kind of the best explanation I've, I've come up with this week. Um, As we go through the Gospel of John, you're going to see Jesus has a way of being met with a physical problem and then addressing it in a deeper way, right? And so in in a couple chapters, in John chapter 4, Jesus is sitting next to a woman at a well, and they're talking about water, and what does he say? He doesn't talk about water anymore. He says, I've got living water. I'm, I'm living water for you. A few chapters later in John chapter 6, he's met with a need for bread. And what does he eventually end up saying? I am the bread. I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the one that satisfies like bread. I'm the one that satisfies like water. And I think that's what he's doing here. It's, it's hard because this is one of the only miracles. All the rest of the miracles through the Gospel of John were told exactly why he's doing and saying what he's doing. Um, But this one, we don't get an explanation for. So we have to try to figure it out. But I think what's happening is Mary comes to him and he says, they have no wine. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, I am the wine. I am the wine. I'm the wine that has been promised throughout the ages. And it's the same thing as we get later on in the Gospel and Jesus sits down with his disciples at a meal and he holds up the cup and says, this cup is a new covenant in My blood. Whenever you drink this wine, remember that My blood was poured out and shed for the forgiveness of your sins. He's, he is the, the wine of this wedding. And, and even to build on that, as you've read through the Old Testament, they've been, the Old Testament was looking forward to this day when a new kingdom was going to come. And that new kingdom was going to be characterized by having an abundance of wine. And so Isaiah, in Isaiah 25, 6, I don't have it up on the slide, but he says there's going to be a day when the Lord's going to prepare a feast of rich food and really, really good wine, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amos says there's going to be a day when the mountains drip with the best wines and the hills flow with wine. There's going to be a kingdom that comes and there's going to be a lot of good wine there. Jacob blesses his 12 sons and he says, you're going to be so blessed that you're going to wash your garments in wine. Which doesn't make sense, but it's just saying wine's going to be so abundant that you're going to even wash your clothes in it. That's how abundant it is. And so to try to, to, try to kind of tie all this together, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus responds uh, by saying, 
yeah, that means more than you even realize it means. Um, but it's not my time to come in and usher in the kingdom with an abundance of wine. It's not my time to die on the cross, shed my blood for the forgiveness of sins. It's not my time to usher in the kingdom. That time has not yet come. It's not my time to be glorified. And to that, Mary responds and says, okay, do whatever he tells you. And I don't think she's saying that because she thinks she convinced him to do something he didn't want to do. I think Mary is saying that going, okay, it's not the time I thought it was. I thought this was the time that he would maybe usher this in. Um, But I trust Jesus is going to do what is good and what is right. And so he'll take care of it. Do what he tells you to do. So Mary responds this way by faith, knowing that it may not be the time she thought it was, but Jesus will do what is good and right. And so, and one of the beauties is, is as we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see that even though the hour has not yet come, the hour for Jesus to be glorified and the, for Him to die and rise from the dead, all of the miracles and all of the things that Jesus does are all pointing to that day, giving us little glimpses of it. And so Jesus says, it's maybe not that time now in its fullness, but let me give you a glimpse of what that time will be. So he tells the servants, go fill up six stone jars. You know, get, fill them up to the brim, it says. Not just part way, so we just know. Like this was talking 150 to 180 gallons of water that was turned into wine. He has the servants fill them up, and he tells the servants to like scoop some out Bring it to the master of the feast. And one of the things I, I want to just point out, and I appreciate this, notice that Jesus doesn't do anything magical with the jars. Right? So um, I have appreciated the Chosen series because it helps us. But the Chosen series has him like holding his hands kind of over the jars and praying over them and they kind of turn to wine. He doesn't do that in the story. He doesn't like do anything magical. He doesn't do an incantation. He doesn't even say a prayer. He just says, go fill up the water jars and scoops them out. Because Jesus is that powerful. <laughs> he doesn't have to say a prayer. It just happens. And, uh, and, it's even, and I think it's even scarier for the servants. Right? Can you, like, if the servants would have seen him like pray over it, they could have been like, maybe something happened. But no, they, as far as the servants know, they just have some like jars that they use to clean dirty people with, and they're scooping some of that out and bringing it up to the master of the feast. Um, can you, do you want that job? <laughs> like, let's feed him some water. The head honcho, our boss. I'm sure they were trembling. And then the story, I love, that tells the story, like they give it to him, he drinks it, and he doesn't say, what is it the first thing that the master of the feast does? He doesn't say that yet. He says, bring me the groom. Now, can you imagine being the servant? Like, oh, shoot, we just gave him water. Now he's saying, bring the groom here. Because he's thinking they're going to get chewed out. And yet, when the groom shows up, he says, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine, right? After everybody's a little tipsy, then you can give them the... Give them the, the lesser wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. And you can about imagine what was going on in the servant's mind at that point. Like, whew, right? Um, but don't forget, 
Like everything we're learning, and, and there's so much in this passage, I can't dive into all of it, but everything we're learning in this passage, this miracle is not just about the miracle. None of Jesus' miracles are, okay? They're, they are about the miracle, sure, but all of the miracles are designed to be witnesses. They're pointing us to Jesus. And so this is about Jesus, and he's the wine. He's the good wine that has come after the bad wine, right? He's the better wine that comes. And it's a reminder that the the new covenant that Jesus is ushering in is actually better than the old covenant. The the wine comes in the old purification jars that, that was the law. I mean, there's all of these different things happening in there. But it's a reminder that the new covenant that Jesus is ushering in, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, is way, way better than what God has ever been doing. But it's a kingdom that comes in through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. And, and everything he's doing in this, in this miracle is pointing us forward to that event that he will die and he will rise again. And at that point, the kingdom will have come. And, and we read that this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And in this, he manifested his glory. Now remember, earlier we read, Jesus said, that hour when I die and rise again, then I will be glorified. But here, he says, there's a little bleep of my glory I'm just going to show you in this moment. And one of the things I love about this story and this little line is it reminds us that Jesus has this habit of revealing his glory in just obscure, kind of unimportant, inconsequential places. Because Galilee was like a county, kind of a region, and it was known as being a county in like the podunk area of, of Israel, right? And Cana was even worse. It was like podunk in the podunk. And it says, this is where Jesus first revealed his glory. I was thinking, I don't know if anybody's from Rhinelander, but it'd be like, like Jesus did his first miracle in Oneida County in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. And people, most people in the world would be like, never heard of it. It's like, that's the point. Like he, he reveals his glory for the first time, and actually most of the time, in really kind of obscure, out-of-the-way places. And then on top of that, just think of how the story played out. Who actually knew that even a miracle happened here? The wedding guests didn't know. They just kept dancing and drinking and eating. And they just thought, boy, some good wine came. Right? The master of the feast, he never knew. He was never told that this was a miracle. He just drank the wine and said, this is really good. The only people who knew at this entire party were Mary and Jesus and the disciples and the servants. All pretty obscure, lowly, pretty unimportant people. That's who Jesus revealed his glory to. And we're going to see that. One of the things I really love when we really pay attention to the Gospels is that um, Jesus wasn't going out of his way to reveal his glory. Like, he didn't do this miracle in Jerusalem. He didn't do this miracle at the temple. He didn't do this with the priests and the religious leaders. I mean, actually, if you start paying attention, Jesus did some miracles for crowds, but usually he was trying to get away from the crowds. He wasn't trying to, like, draw in massive amounts of people and try to get as big a reach as possible. He was kind of going into the outskirts doing his ministry all the time, always revealing his glory to people who seemed unimportant, inconsequential, kind of on the fringes. But when you understand that, this next verse, um, 
makes you kind of question. On the, it says, you know, this is the first of his signs. He did it in Cana and Galilee. He manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And you go, makes sense, right? The disciples were there. They saw it all happen. They were kind of on the sidelines watching it go down. They saw Jesus, you know, turn this water into wine. They, they heard the master of the feast say, this is really good wine. And they saw Jesus' glory in that, and they believed in him. And we're like, yeah, that makes sense. But um, notice what this doesn't say. It doesn't say the servants believed in him. And the servants were like, right there, weren't they? I mean, they lived it, right? I think they probably had more emotion attached to that than, than the disciples. They were the ones who were filling the water jars. They were the ones bringing it to the master of the feast. They are the ones that probably trembled as the master of the feast was about to drink it. They stood there as the master of the feast said, this is really good wine. They experienced it all, and yet they didn't believe. Only the disciples believed. And if you go to the next slide, one of the commentators said, you know, the servants, they saw the sign or the, the miracle. John calls every miracle a sign because it's pointing us to something. It's a, it's a witness. So the servants, they saw that, but they didn't see the glory. But the disciples, by faith, perceived Jesus' glory behind the sign, and then they put their faith in him even more. And it's a reminder for each one of us that Faith is required for us to be able to see through a miracle or through a sign and to actually see the glory of Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's a reminder that for each one of us that, that it's really only through faith that we can even begin to grasp who Jesus is, be able to see his glory, to see who he is. You know, and, and we're going to keep going through this gospel and we're going to see this theme over and over and over again that Jesus is going to do a miracle after a miracle after a miracle. He's going to feed the 5,000. He's going to feed the 4,000. And we're not going to read about any of them hardly believing in him as a result of the, his miracles because it requires faith to really see Jesus for who he is. And uh, it's faith that helps us look through that to see who Jesus is, but to see the true glory of Jesus actually doesn't reside in the miracles themselves, the true glory of Jesus is in his death and his resurrection. That's where the glory is. And, and all of the miracles and all of the things that Jesus did throughout his life pointed toward that hour. That that's where the glory is. Where he says, now it's time for me to be glorified when I die and rise again. And and when we see that in Jesus, it requires faith to see that, but then it kind of trickles down into, into our own lives, recognizing that like, that's where glory comes in our own lives, is when we're called to lay down our lives, take up our cross, and follow Jesus Christ. We, we, wanna, we have this tendency, we want to look for glory and supernatural, spectacular things that are happening in, in, in miracles. We want to see that kind of glory and we're kind of on the hunt for it all the time. And this is a reminder for each one of us that actually all of the miraculous and the supernatural that we see is actually not where the glory is. The glory, it, it looks through that to the glory of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's for us our own figurative death and resurrection is where the glory is. When we, when we turn to Christ by faith and, and the old self dies and our new self is, is rose again, that's glory. Or as we're going to read in a few weeks, when we're born again, 
There's glory in that. But there's also glory as we just live each day by faith, trusting in the one who laid down his life for us. There's, there's just glory in that, in that ordinary. There's glory in us listening to Mary's command to say, do whatever he tells you to do. Like just looking to Jesus and saying, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know what timing you are working with. I just trust you. So you tell me to do something, I'm going to do it. There's glory in that. Not in all the spectacular, not in all the flashing lights, uh, just in the ordinary, I trust you, Jesus. I'm going to lay down my life and follow you. And so it's a reminder for each one of us, keep our eyes on Jesus. As we go through whatever day we go through, as we go to work, as we go to school, as we go home and raise our kids or our grandkids, keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and keep our eyes on the true glory of his death and his resurrection. As we keep our eyes on him, we keep laying down our lives, we keep following him by faith, and then we keep looking forward to that kingdom that's coming, that's going to fully come one day when he comes again, and he's going to usher in this kingdom that's going to be full of abundant wine and the best wine, and his grace will flow, and the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for who you are. We give you thanks and praise for the life of Jesus Christ. The life he lived, the miracles he did, but even more, that they all pointed to his death and his resurrection. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the glory of that moment, the way that works out in the salvation of our souls and the salvation of your world and redemption. Father, we give you thanks and praise. And Father, we come to you and confess that we often, we often don't live that way. We often get caught up in, in all of the hype, looking for glory in all of the wrong places and missing the glory and just laying down our lives and following you in the glory of your death and resurrection. So, Father, forgive us for that, but also stir our hearts, change our hearts to see, to see your glory in our everyday. And help us, Father, through your Spirit, help us to, to lay down our lives each and every day and follow you, to, to follow Jesus' leading, that, that we would each day go where you tell us to go, do what you tell us to do, say what you tell us to say, and that we would follow you with all of our lives. Lord, and may we see your glory in that, but may we also look beyond that to the coming kingdom and to the wedding supper of the Lamb that is on the horizon. And Father, may you hold on to us and pull us through and bring us to that point where we can celebrate with you in the new kingdom where there will be an abundance of good, good wine. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.